Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Anoush. On today's New Statesman podcast, I'm joined by Jeremy Hunt, Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, 2019 Tory leadership contender and former health secretary who's also served as culture secretary and foreign secretary, whose new book, Zero, details how to eliminate avoidable deaths in the NHS. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeremy. Pleasure. So this book, at the heart of it, is trying to work out how you eliminate unnecessary debts in the NHS. And the stats that you found out when you were health secretary yourself was that there are 150 avoidable deaths each week in the NHS. Yes, it was a kind of light bulb moment when I became health secretary because the first tragedy I had to deal with, the first of many sort of crises that you deal with in a job like that was mid-staffs. And I remember being told by the chief executive of the NHS that modern healthcare systems harm about 10% of all their patients. And so I said, so how many actually die? And being the good old NHS, we actually count this stuff much better than most healthcare systems. Hmm. And they said about 4% of hospital deaths have a 50% or more chance of being preventable, which is where you get that 150 deaths a week. But what I didn't realise at the time, but I now understand, is this is not just about the NHS. This is what happens in all healthcare systems around the world. And I think the NHS, by being the most transparent about it, could also become a world leader in putting it right. Because that transparency is interesting, isn't it? Because when you get the hot seat and you're in your new new department, you actually want your officials to give you letters from patients telling them their stories about relatives or loved ones who have died unnecessarily. And that's even that is quite tricky in the beginning, isn't it? It is. And I think things have really changed in the NHS. When I arrived, there was very much a culture that any story about a care failing was a bad thing because it would damage public confidence in the NHS. And that's part of the reason why, you know, the terrible thing really about what happened amid staffs wasn't that bad things happened because they do sometimes. It went on for four years before anyone put a stop to it. And that was really because of that culture. That said, the story we've heard recently about Northeast Ambulance Service trying to cover up what happened in a case of a, an attempted suicide shows that we can never be complacent about this. And I think part of the issue is not just a system thing, but it's also on the level of an individual doctor or nurse. If you could imagine these deeply ethical people when something goes wrong, someone dies, the most important thing to them 
is to be open and transparent, to learn the lessons, make sure it never happens again. The system makes that impossible. People are worried about lawyers, about the CQC, about NHS England, about the people who commission their care, about their trust. They're worried about being fired, about being struck off. And so in the end, the thing that matters more than anything else to all of us who care about the NHS is the thing that sometimes doesn't happen at all. And you write that there is a sort of silence and omerta about these avoidable deaths. And I think someone, when you start your job, say, says we're really in healthcare, we harm 10% of patients, as if it's just built into the system and there's no other way. Exactly. And that's why I deliberately use the word zero as the challenging title for the book, because my fundamental point is that healthcare systems should not accept even one preventable death as inevitable. We may never get to zero, but we should be aiming for zero. And that's the sort of the cultural change that I need. One of the most encouraging things, though, people say, well, you'll never get there. But one of the most encouraging things was that throughout the nearly six years I was health secretary, not once did a doctor or nurse challenge me and say, this isn't happening. You're making this all up. In fact, it was the opposite. They would say every doctor has a private graveyard in their own mind of all the patients that died or may have died because of mistakes they've made. And that is an incredible burden that we put on doctors, nurses, midwives, all professionals. And I think you can look at other industries that, that used to do the same thing. They used to look for someone to blame when things went wrong. The airline industry is the most famous example. They used to fire pilots when there were near misses. And they discovered that if you do that, you're not going to reduce the number of crashes you have. The way to improve safety is to make pilots part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that's where they develop what's called human factor science. And again, getting back to the title of the book, after 30 years of trying to change the culture in the airline industry, in 2017, there were zero passenger fatalities across the whole world in the airline industry. Unfortunately, after that, we had the uh, max jet crashes. And so even there, you can't be complacent. But it is possible to get to zero in, in other contexts. And so that requires a, a culture change, as you describe in your book, which means that doctors and nurses don't feel like they are personally going to get the blame when something goes wrong, which leads to cover-ups in the, in, in the most extreme cases. Exactly. So if you think in, in your and my job, when we make a mistake, I don't know, get a fact wrong in a story, do a media interview that bombs, whatever it is, you feel an idiot afterwards, but no one dies. People in healthcare are brave enough to do a job where making ordinary human mistakes sometimes means there's a tragedy where someone dies. And what we need to do is to properly separate those ordinary human mistakes that anyone could make with gross negligence, with the kind of things which are unforgivable mm. in any circumstances. So there should never be any forgiveness for a surgeon who turns up to do an operation drunk. Not that ever happens, but that's quite different to forgetting to do check number 13 of 20 checks because you were distracted because someone walked in the room. In those situations, what you need to do is to look at the systems and say, how could we build a system that makes it impossible for someone to forget that crucial check ever again. And that's the way that you can really make that promise to the bereaved family that there is some meaning 
in the life that's been tragically lost from your family because the system has learned and we're going to make damn sure it ever happens again. And what's the, how has the book been received? Because you have described the NHS as sometimes being a rogue system and that can sound like in a headline you criticising those people who have worked so hard during the pandemic to get us through. Has there been any pushback from within the organisation? No, I've actually had a, a, a good response, touch wood, so far. It does feel like a rogue system to families who are suffering a terrible loss and feel that the system is shutting them out and doesn't want to tell the truth about what happened to their loved ones. And initially, perhaps in a sort of slightly traditional Tory way, I thought the, it's the fault of the managers and producer interest. And then you start to ask why it is these things are happening and you find it's much more complex. And it's a problem, as I say, that's not just in the NHS that's happening all over the world. And I would actually say the opposite. I'm a fan of the NHS, but the principle at the heart of the NHS is equality. It is that every single citizen, rich, poor, young, old, city or country, matters equally. And that's why we want a society where they all have access to the hospital care they need, to the, the GP care they need. But to make a reality of that equality, it's not just being able to get into hospital when you need to, although that matters. It's also having the highest standard of care when you get there. And so I think that quality and safety needs to be as much part of the mix as access. Because actually, when I first received your book, I did think in the traditional Tory way, it might, you know, suggest some different structures within the NHS that perhaps dilutes the free at the point of access model that, that we've all come to love. But actually, it's, it's a real uh, passionate defence of that model. Yes. And I think it's a rabbit hole to start talking about those structures for two reasons. First of all, everyone often thinks it's because of the structures we have that, that we've got problems until you look at other healthcare systems mm. and they've all got problems, sometimes slightly different problems. And the truth is that as we all live longer and new medicines come on stream, wherever you live, we're going to pay more. Americans are going to pay more through their insurance policies. Germans and the Dutch are going to pay more social insurance and the Brits and the Irish are going to pay more through their taxes. So I think the structure is not the relevant point. The real point is, can we get the highest standards of the world with our current structures? And I think we can. It means changing some of the ways we do things, not those structures, but things like going back to everyone having their own family doctor, which clinically we know would be a a big improvement on what we have now. But I think it's absolutely possible. And in the book, obviously, it must have been quite inevitable that you did some soul searching from your own record. I mean, you are the longest serving health secretary and uh, you grapple with some of the decisions you made or perhaps some of the progress that you didn't make in terms of social care, in terms of uh, increasing the workforce and also your confrontation with the junior doctors as well. I know that during the pandemic, when you were talking about some of these issues, a lot of people, were, was a lot of your critics were saying if only he could have sorted out in, in, that out in his time in the department. What is it that you look back on that you thought that you should have done differently? It's a, first of all, totally legitimate question to ask. I used to get, I still get loads of tweets every time I appear on the media saying, uh, gosh, Jeremy Hunt's absolutely right about the workforce shortage, he'd be so angry if he knew who health secretary yeah. was between 2012 <laughs> and 2018. But the truth is, there is no market for self-justifying political memoirs. And so if you're going to write a book about your time doing a job uh, as I did, it's going to be subjective for sure, but you have to try and be honest about the things uh, you got wrong. And I would say that 
on the ledger, what am I most proud of? By the time I left, three million more patients were going to good or outstanding hospitals. In fact, when I arrived, we weren't even measuring which hospitals were good or outstanding. The 20 billion rise in the NHS budget, which brought it closer to its long-term average, but uh, was a big step up from where it was when I arrived, and the big increase in doctor and nurse training places. They were the positives. The negatives, I did not get a 10-year plan for the social care system as I did for the NHS. And today, when you see people waiting an hour to get an ambulance for a stroke, one of the reasons that's happening is because the ambulances are stuck at hospitals because they can't get people out of A&E, because there aren't enough beds, because people can't be discharged into the social care system. Mm. So that was was definitely, I think, probably the biggest regret that I have, that I didn't manage to do that. The junior doctor's strike, I was deeply sad that it happened. I definitely didn't communicate my message as well as I might have or should have to to junior doctors. There was a silver lining because in that strike, when we weren't arguing about the contract, I was trying to understand, were there more general concerns that junior doctors had. And the thing that kept on coming back, they would say, look, you say we need better care at weekends, but there aren't enough doctors in the week because we have all these rotor gaps. And uh, I looked into it and I'm ashamed to say that no one had ever brought that up with me as an issue before. That was really the first time I think I'd heard the phrase rotor gap and they were right. And so it was because of that, that That was actually in 2016, the junior doctor strike, that Mm. I persuaded Theresa May as her first decision as her first decision about the NHS as Prime Minister to increase the number of doctors we train by 25%, which is a big increase, five new medical schools. I think some good did come out of what was otherwise an absolutely horrible dispute. Yeah, of course, throughout this time, you were up against, you were part of an austerity government, but there are, you know, moments where you're trying to persuade George Osborne. I think when he's having a haircut and he's free of Treasury officials around him, you actually do persuade him to put eight billion more into the NHS. That's part of your book. But in the context, it was a time of cutting back spending. And of course, you know, that those cuts to local authorities had a big impact on the provision of social care, which you've mentioned. But I don't think NHS England has met its targets for A&E waiting times, cancer care and hospital appointments since 2015. And it was the slowest period of investment in the NHS in its history. But you still, I think, defend austerity as an agenda. Can you give that defence to me? Yes. I, as a cabinet minister, I have to accept collective responsibility. I was part of the cabinet that came into power, coalition government, in 2010, and we faced the biggest financial crisis since the Second World War, and we needed to make difficult cuts. And I do defend the decision in its entirety, or the NHS budget was frozen, not cut, but I do defend the decision in its entirety because the result of getting the economy back on its feet was that we were then able to afford a record increase for the NHS in 2018. Not that I would ever pretend there was anything other than a lot of pain for the NHS until that point. But if I look at the individual cuts under that umbrella, the one that I think went too far was social care. Mm. I think it was a silent killer because what happened was when you cut the money for social care going to local authorities, no individual has their package cut, but the local authority just doesn't provide new packages for as many people 
or as generous a level as it would otherwise have done. And so people don't really notice that. But when I was health secretary and I was seeing our hospitals filling up because we couldn't get people out into the community, I realized just how uh, dangerous that was. And indeed, around that time, I also became responsible for social care as well. And that's why one of the first things I did as um, select committee chair was to do a report on social care, where we said the government needs to increase the funding for social care by £7 billion a year by the end of the parliament. It's actually going to go up by £2 billion a year. So I'm afraid we're a long way off what I think it needs. Mm. Yes. I mean, I was going to ask you that, how well you think the government now is tackling that silent killer that you mentioned. Well, I, th- I hope it doesn't take as long for the penny to, penny to drop with Sajid Javid as it did for me, mm-hmm. because if he's battling with, this is not the only reason to do it, the, it should be done in its own right, but yeah. if you are battling to get flow through hospitals so that people can arrive at an A&E, be treated and then be sent home quickly, then the social care is a really essential part of that mix. And I am disappointed we haven't made further progress on social care. I welcome the fact that there's going to be a cap. I think there's a group of people who have catastrophic care costs that, that will be helped by that. My, my inner conservative is disappointed that we're not also putting in place a tax incentive for people to save for their own social care alongside their pension, because I think in the long run, the structures we have will lead to a very big expansion of the state and therefore the tax base when you know we should be encouraging people who can to save for their own care costs. But most importantly and crucially, we are not yet giving local authorities enough for them to be able to meet their statutory needs. And I think that that is out of step with where most British people are, where we would want to look after our most vulnerable with all the dignity and respect they deserve. And having been in that position yourself, perhaps you have an insight into why it it is taking some time for the penny to drop that this is such a fundamental issue. I think that you can look at what's happened, point to events that that have some responsibility. I know everyone wants to blame politicians, but for example, Theresa May and Philip Hammond said to me, we'll do the social care system later this year. This was in the summer of uh, 2018, or they didn't say that personally, but their team said, we'll do that later in the year. I was then moved to the foreign office. Her government fell. We had the Brexit wars. And then when Boris Johnson became prime minister after the 2019 election, we had the pandemic for two years. It's been a very choppy, difficult period in British politics. But now the pandemic is largely behind us. I really think it's the moment. I use the phrase in in my book, a 1948 moment. Mm. That was the year the NHS was founded. It's the time we want to be putting long-term solutions in place. In the NHS's case, to move away from the targets culture, which I think is very destructive to safe, high quality patient care, but put in place a long-term plan for the social care system. It's not just money, but it's really simple things and important things. Like in Denmark, they have a policy that says we don't want to open any new care homes because we think people want to stay at home and with technology and support, it can be not just more humane, but also cheaper to keep people at home with support. Now that's not nursing care where you might need to go to a nursing home, but residential care. Now we have made a decision about that, but if we did, 
we would be able to direct private sector investment into the parts of the market that we most want to expand. And I think it's those kinds of decisions that are kept in limbo when you don't have a long-term plan. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And, and some of these other things that you have come to light when you've been writing your book, like the sort of not enough recruitment of doctors and nurses, you have an amendment to the Health and Social Care Bill that would have brought transparency around that, where it would be published how many doctors and nurses you might need in 10 years' time and should be recruiting for now. That amendment fell. The government opposed it. Does that frustrate you? What does it say to you? It's, it's, it's a massive shooting ourselves in the foot <laughs> because it would be massively cheaper for the Treasury if we didn't have to spend over £6 billion a year on locum doctors and agency nurses, which is the direct consequence of not training enough doctors and nurses for the future. And it's also risks us getting into a, a vicious cycle where doctors are so stressed out, particularly GPs at the moment, that they say, I'm sorry, the only way I can cope is to go part-time. Mm -hmm. But of course, in going part-time, they increase the pressure on their colleagues, and then more people want to go part-time. And that I think is, uh, that's why I think something like this is a really important thing to, to solve. But I, when I was writing, it's a seven years in the writing. Mm -hmm. I started it in the summer of 2015 when I just wanted to tell a few patient stories, some of the stories I'd heard to wake everyone up. And I got permission to do that, to write a book. Most cabinet ministers don't write books from a lady you may have heard of called Sue Gray. <laughs> um, and so I got permission, but then we had the junior doctors strike. Uh, I moved to the foreign office, the pandemic never got the moment. In the middle of all of that, I had a breakfast with David Cameron. I was talking to him about the book and he said, um, 
But the trouble is, he said, the world is full of books that analyze the problem brilliantly, but don't offer solutions. So I went back over every single story, every issue, and I said, but what's the answer? And I disciplined myself to try and suggest an answer. And I think that when it comes to recruitment and workforce shortages, we need, because it takes 10 years to train a GP, we need to take the number of doctors we're training for 10, 15, 20 years out of the Westminster cycle. It's never going to be top of the list for a chancellor or a health secretary, how many doctors you're going to have in two decades time. Mm. But it sure as hell matters to the doctors in the NHS. Mm. And so that's why I wanted to amend the Health and Care Act to make sure we had that independent workforce projection. Okay. And if you don't mind talking a bit about sort of your place in politics now, you were in cabinet for a long time, 2010 to 2019. How have you found being on the back benches? I know being a select committee chair is a really big job, but it's very different. I've absolutely loved it. I really <laughs> yeah. have. The, the pressure of getting up every morning, reading the papers is not a pleasure when you're a cabinet minister. You're flicking through them very fast or looking through them on your iPad, trying to see if there's anything that's a problem for you. And so it's, it's an incredible change to be able to enjoy reading the newspapers. Um, and also all my three children were born when I was a cabinet minister. So when I stepped down, they'd never known me as anything other than a cabinet minister. Now I can cycle with them to school. So I, I don't rule out going back into frontline politics in the future. But I suppose the kind of having the time to think through what the answer is or might be on big issues like the future of the NHS, it's surprisingly difficult to do in office. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by brilliant people. 80, 90% of your time as health secretary is spent firefighting. In fact, I found that the only way I could be strategic as health secretary was to have all my important meetings on a Monday and they had to finish before 3.30 on a Monday afternoon because that was the first moment you could be called to the House of Commons for an urgent question. And then right the way through from Monday afternoon, evening, Tuesday, Wednesday, Prime Minister's questions, if you hadn't got the strategic meetings out of the way early, they might just never happen. Okay, yeah, sounds exhausting. But you said you don't rule out going back into frontline politics. There's always rumours of a reshuffle these days, it seems. But if you were invited to join Boris Johnson's cabinet, would you say yes? Um, I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not top of my list. Mm. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I think Sajid Javid is doing a brilliant job as health secretary. I think he's very, very committed. And uh, you don't know what's going to happen in the future in politics, but I am very happy where I am doing what I'm doing. And you were head to head against Boris Johnson in the final round of that Tory leadership contest in 2019. Would you run again for the leadership? I don't rule it out. Mm -hmm. I don't think now is the best time for a leadership contest because we're in the middle of a, a horrific war in Ukraine. And Britain has been, I think, to a lot of people's surprise, the most robust member of the Western alliance. And frankly, I think Putin would be laughing if we mm. were to have a sort of hiatus of several months while Britain chose a new prime minister. But who knows what the future holds. Mm. And we're recording at a time when Sue Gray's report is um, about to come out. We don't know when, so I won't zero in on that specifically. But with Partygate, I was thinking in a parallel world, it might have been you as our prime minister taking us through the pandemic. Would there have been parties in Downing Street under your premiership? I hope not. But look, I was health secretary for six years. I wouldn't have made some of the mistakes that 
Boris made in the pandemic, but I would have made different mistakes that he didn't make. And I think that's the nature of that job. They're very personal and the mistakes you make are very personal. I don't think the next election is going to be decided by Partygate. I think it's going to be decided by the electorate making a judgment as to which party has the best long-term plans for the things that matter to them, whether it's the economy, which mm. obviously now people are worrying about cost of living, but actually a more fundamental problem and linked to that is the lack of growth in the economy at the moment and the future of the NHS, which I hope this book contributes to some of the ideas about. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the cost of living crisis. Do you feel that the government is doing enough? I know that there's been quite a lot of criticism that there's a vacuum where big policy should be? Well, it is a um, really big issue. I think the government is doing a lot that it doesn't get credit for, £21 billion pounds of mm. help already there. But nonetheless, these are very exceptional circumstances, and I'm sure they will come forward with yet more. But I think the fundamental concern that people have is not just what are we going to do now with these enormous gas and electricity bills, but what's going to happen in two, three, four years to my family finances with inflation high, is that going to come down with the growth in the economy not being as strong as it might? And I'm not saying that people necessarily go as far as I'm about to go now, but as a conservative, I worry because our fundamental promise to the country is that we will invest in good public services and try and lower taxes. And without growth, it's not just the NHS and care system, but it's also defence, which in the wake mm -hmm. of what Putin is doing, needs some more money and people want us to lighten the tax burden. All that becomes very difficult unless you're really motoring in terms of your growth. Mm -hmm. And so how do you bring that growth up? You're not opposed to the national insurance rights to fund social care? I'm not. And I appreciate I'm probably in a big minority amongst my yeah. own parliamentary colleagues, but I think in the end... It is honest with people to say that we are going to spend more on health and care over the years ahead. We have a tax-funded system. We will probably end up spending less in terms of an increase than people in private systems because the NHS has pretty good cost control. We pay lower prices for drugs than yeah. anywhere else in the world, for example. But people want to know that in the end, we are going to be able to afford really fantastic care. And so your question was, where's the growth going to come mm. from? I think it will come from playing to our strengths and they are in technology, life sciences, green industries, our brilliant universities. We are already the, the biggest tech hub in Europe. I think we can do a lot more. This is not an overnight thing, but if we could be the world's next Silicon Valley, I think that would be a tremendous asset for the UK and I think we could be. And in terms of that money that's being raised from that tax rise, I, I've spoken to people within the NHS who say well, that's never going to be enough. And I wonder whether you think that money could end up being wasted, not because of inefficiency, because like you say, it's an efficient system, but because it's, we're not, it's not going necessarily towards the right things. There's not really a plan for recruitment. I know we've been talking about that um, at length in this interview. My concern is that, you know, this is, the biggest single thing I, I learned, actually, as health secretary is that you can put three billion quid extra into the NHS, but if you haven't got three billion quid's worth of extra doctors and nurses mm. to spend it on, the risk you have is that that extra money will just inflate the salaries of the doctors and nurses you have, mainly through locum pay rates. And the trick, the, the only way that you're actually going to increase uh, the amount 
of care we deliver is by increasing the capacity of the system. Mm. And that capacity is not elastic. We used to think it was because whenever we needed more doctors and nurses, we just imported them from overseas. I think we're reassessing that now. And there's a global shortage of 2.1 million doctors, according to the WHO, 15 million nurses. We're not the only people with a COVID backlog. Other countries need their doctors and nurses too. But also I think we have to ask ourselves the ethics of recruiting doctors from countries like Somalia, which desperately need them themselves. The doctors we get from those countries do a brilliant job and we should always want to have international exchange, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be pillaging the health systems of much poorer countries. Mm, okay. And just the last couple of questions, because I know we're running out of time. You are a Surrey MP and there's been a lot of jitters within the Conservative Party about the blue wall crumbling. I think it lost places from Tunbridge Wells to Whitney in the local elections. You might embody actually the blue wall Tory, someone who was pro-Remain, someone who's socially liberal, someone who represents a Southern constituency. Do you have those concerns and do you hear them from your colleagues as well? I do. And we should remember that we got a majority in 2019 because we are a coalition of blue and red wall seats. And if you look at the Australian election results, you can see the dangers of alienating your more suburban conservative voters who have those more socially liberal views. We need to keep that coalition together. Okay. And so what would you do? The Tiverton and Honiton by-election is coming up. What's, what should the Conservatives do to target those voters? I think we need to show that we are in touch with the concerns of those voters. We've got a fantastic new candidate for Tiverton and Hullerton, and we need to show people that we understand local concerns, rural concerns, the concerns of farmers, but also show that as a party, we do care about our heartlands as well as potential new areas that would like to join our coalition. Right, OK. And obviously that by-election came about because one of your colleagues was reported watching porn in, in the chamber. There's another by-election coming up in Wakefield as well. That came about because of another one of your colleagues being convicted for sexually assaulting a 15-year-old. And there has been another story, yet another story of a Tory MP arrested on a suspicion of rape. What's happening within your party? What does this say about the state of your party? In none of those individual cases would I remotely want to defend, but nor do they speak for the vast majority of decent Conservative MPs who work very hard for their constituents. Uh, and in the end, I think that the result of the next election, whether people in our heartlands as well as in our more recent, more recently acquired seats vote for us, won't be about these issues. It will be about whether we have the best plans for people and their families. And that's the argument that we very much have to win going forward. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Pleasure. Lovely Thank to you. have you. Likewise. Thank you very much, Anoush. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my interviewee, Jeremy Hunt. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and watch us on YouTube and leave us a nice review online. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.